Thanks to Headspace for sponsoring the Partially Examined Life. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. For a free one-month trial, please visit headspace.com slash P-E-L. Before we get going, there's another podcast that sponsored our podcast, the Class X Podcast. Shukri and John decided to take their friendship and experience as social science teachers to the podcast world. They analyze documentaries, articles, popular philosophers, basically anything they view as independently minded in American culture. That's the Class X Podcast. Look them up on Spotify or Apple or wherever else. This is the Partially Examined Life preview to episode 269, part 2, Hannah Arendt talking about totalitarianism. As you might expect in this part 2, we do try to hook up what Arendt says to today's politics, but that's not what you're going to hear now, because Arendt herself has some very vivid and interesting things to say about totalitarian logic. Take a listen. There's that section where she gives a nice example of what this sort of thinking means, where you accuse someone of a crime crime against the state or the party or whatever. It doesn't matter whether they've actually committed the crime because what matters is that there's a history of struggle between classes and that means that certain crimes are due to be committed and the party must punish these crimes. Therefore, the party needs criminals. Even if it doesn't know who the criminals exactly are, it has to do that in order to help history along. History will get held up you know, history is on this inevitable course, but it'll get held up if you don't help it along a little bit. So either you really are a criminal, in which case you are guilty, or if you're not actually the criminal, you're not helping us help history. And that's even worse. It's even... <laughs> You've been called upon to play the criminal. Exactly. It's even worse to declare your innocence because you're innocent, because then you're the real enemy, right? You're just holding things up. You're guilty of the greatest crime of all, and you might as well be punished for this one because. <laughs> the other example she gives are it's, you know, it's permissible to kill bourgeoisie are dying out. It's permissible to kill them. If certain race is unfit to live, it must be exterminated. Things like that. So I was trying to think of examples, even if it wasn't sort of full on totalitarian regimes, but totalitarian sentiments, totalitarian actions. She, of course, is pointing to Stalinism and Nazism. As I recall, she's also pointing towards aspects of the French Revolution. It's a kind of perversion, marks it of super tribalism or, you know, kind of mobster thuggery or whatever, where it's no longer even loyalty to the cause, right? It's a triumph of ideology. I'm just trying to bridge that gap between it being the same kind of thing as being disloyal to the mob and therefore you get sacrificed is it the same thing as the killing of conspirators by the irish army if you were suspected of having collaborated that you would be killed even if it wasn't true and in fact some level that was okay because it was part of the cause you know same thing with the french revolution i think it's hard to say because she does emphasize right that terror is also a tool of tyranny and of course, Terra can be a tool of one-party dictatorships. Even one-party dictatorships are not totalitarian, she says. And so even the early stages of the communist revolutions and Nazism don't count as totalitarianism. You have to get to this really crazy point before you can call it that. The ideology has to become autonomous. Yes, Mark, and the corollary of that is it becomes autonomous and there's no opposition. 
So in that same essay, The Ideology and Terror, page 464, she says, terror becomes total when it's independent of opposition. So if you think about terror as a tool of the ruling class to oppress a group against which is in some form of resistance, whether it's covert or overt resistance, her point is that terror of totalitarianism is so pervasive that it's no longer wielded by one group and opposed by another, but simply impressed upon or leveraged over all people in the system. Yeah, right after that, if lawlessness is the essence of a non-tyrannical government and lawlessness is the essence of tyranny, then terror is the essence of totalitarian domination. This is where she goes back to the Montesquieu point. So terror is the, the realization of the law of movement for totalitarianism. What it essentially does is it frees individuals to cease playing the role of citizen within the state mm-hmm. and instead to become the actors that manifest the law of history or the law of nature. And it frees those individuals to act against the objective enemies without guilt or sympathy. So in a sense, what terror does is abstract the individual from the normal social relations where there might be some sense of, oh, but this was my neighbor, or oh, but this is a relative of mine, or oh, they were one of the good ones, right? To simply, they must be eliminated, and I need to do so without any feeling. Yeah. Terror seeks to stabilize men, in quotes, in order to liberate the forces of nature or history. No free action of either opposition or sympathy can be permitted to interfere with the elimination of the objective enemy of history or nature, of class or of race. Guilt and innocence become senseless notions. Guilty is he who stands in the way of the natural and historical process, which is past judgment over the inferior races or over individuals unfit to live, over dying classes and decadent peoples. The rulers themselves do not claim to be just or wise, only to execute historical or natural laws. They do not apply laws, but execute a movement in accordance with its inherent law. Terror is lawfulness, is if law is the law of the movement of some superhuman force, nature, or history. This is the way Wes was characterizing it. It doesn't matter who dies. There's no justice isn't what's at issue, for instance, or virtue or anything else. It's just realizing the motion of nature or history. Yeah, the individual no longer matters. She doesn't say a lot about that, you know, about collectivism versus individuality. That's sort of the sort of thing other thinkers will emphasize, but it's implied. And her her analysis of lawful government versus totalitarianism is really interesting because what a lawful government does is it translates natural law into positive law. Thou shalt not kill becomes a basis for other aspects of human nature for our legal system. She almost asked us to think of human activity like it's the flux, right? Like it's becoming. And then the laws as if they're sort of the platonic forms. They're the framework. But what a framework of laws does is it actually makes room for individual freedom and spontaneity. And it cares about individual rights, right? A lot of what we mean by a positive law is just things that you thou shalt not, things that you can't do to people, certain rights that you have to respect for people. The way she describes it is that totalitarianism kind of reverses all that so that the law that's at stake is not the law that guards individual rights, for instance. 
It's the law of movement, the law of development towards a perfect society or a perfect race, for instance. Instead of law, you get terror. And what that does, what terror does is instead of creating a framework in which there's individual freedom and spontaneity, it freezes people. And the freedom is all on the side of the development, right? It's the development that is the thing that's supposed to be free in totalitarianism. The individual gets frozen. The individual has no freedom. But the development towards a perfect society or race or whatever, that is the free thing. That's what's supposed to be able to race through humanity, as she puts it. And any individual who stands in the way of that is to be sacrificed. And everyone potentially stands in the way of that, right? There's always a danger that individual freedom and spontaneity will stand in the way. And so you are ready at any moment to eliminate anyone. And and in a sense, you know, individuality per se (laughs) really does stand, unless you can stop people from thinking, unless you can stop people from being reflective, stop people from being individuals, then the regime is never safe. The regime is never safe because, as she says, every birth is a possibility. It's a beginning. It's the beginning of a possible reaction or opposition to the dominant idea. The idea that the point of totalitarianism is to drive towards this end state, whatever it might be, and perfection, or at least completion, is always stymied by the fact that human beings die and and need to be born, and that every birth can destroy or overthrow the system. And this is the point at which I thought about our discussions of 1984 and of Brave New World, that there's a sense in which the concept of Brave New World with the genetic engineering was literarily dramatic, but also thematically more interesting way addressing this possibility by simply phasing out through the gestation process the possibility for thought. In a sense, the Brave New World solution to the possibility of opposition from new births is a much more, let's just call it, logically consistent. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.